And it's added cost. So all of a sudden you're saying to a caregiver, well, this isn't included in the, you know, the most important things that we thought were critical for your kitten, um, but you really should get it, but it's going to cost you another X number of dollars. So it does really make it difficult to market it to caregivers um, that way, for sure. Sorry for saying sorry media presents the Purr Podcast, the best podcast for feline medicine and surgery with tips, tricks, and updates for the entire veterinary healthcare team. If you're dying to know more about cats, keep on listening. Here are your hosts, Dr. Susan Little, famous cat vet and textbook author, and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, talented surgeon and social media geek. Hello, this is Dr. Yola Kirpenstein, and this is the Purr Podcast. And today... I am here with Dr. Kelly de St. Denis. Hello, Kelly. Hello, Yola. Hello, everyone. Thanks for having me back. Kelly, it's wonderful to have you back. And uh, I'm I'm so excited. Uh, today, uh, we're going to do lots of different things. Uh, mm-hmm. Talk about articles, uh, maybe a little bit of news. Uh, but let's start with you. How are you doing? I'm doing great. Um, it's been a busy year and I'd be looking forward to some holidays where we can, hopefully everyone can get a chance to wind down and take a break. I know. I can't believe it's December already. Yeah. Been doing lots um, of traveling and I see you've been traveling a fair bit as well. I have. I have been to so many continents in the last <laughs> month. It's. Uh, I don't even know where I am, but right now I'm in Kansas. That's so good. Back I'm in, in Kansas, beautiful Kansas. Lawrence, Kansas. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, not for very long though. I'm. I'll go to New York this uh, this weekend. Very but, uh, uh Yeah. So that is the last big travel that I have. Uh, then it's Christmas time. So I'm. I'm very excited for the holidays. As a matter of fact, uh, I have like two weeks off, so it's going to be Good. so relaxing. Yeah. I'm taking a two week downtime, but I think I'll still have some work to do. But just just a little bit, not so much. Yeah, I'm the same way. I have a lot of work to do. There's but always something, right? At okay. least I can focus on uh, on on uh, you know other things too. And yeah. for the people that are viewing at uh, on our Patreon account, if you're on Patreon, uh, we have a little glitch. So my my voice activates the camera weirdly. <laughs> There's a little genie in my uh, camera right now that is not agreeing with me. So just bear with us. Hopefully, it goes away at a certain time. Yeah. But as uh, as audio people, you don't hear anything and don't see anything. So then it doesn't matter at all. Exactly. Yeah. So we have, I need to set the timer too. Uh, we yeah. have an exciting program. Uh, so tell me uh, about anything new in your life uh, surrounding cats. Well, I have some exciting news for myself. Um, starting in January, I'm going to be training with Dr. Margie Shirk to be co-editor of the Journal of Feline Medicine and Surgery. Oh, so congratulations. Yeah, announced at the AFP conference. And so Dr. Shirk's going to be stepping down in 2024. But thankfully, she's going to stick around for a year and teach me the ropes because it's not an easy job. <laughs> no, I bet. I bet. Wow. Yeah, Margie has done an amazing job with the journal, mm-hmm. uh, and we all love the journal, of course, um, as cat lovers. And he, if you don't have a subscription yet, you should get it, or you should be become member of AFP or ISFM, where you can get the journal. So uh, right, or you can wait till January. Well, you should become a member of the AFP anyway, but you can wait anyway. till January for JFMS because it's going gold open access, which means right. everyone will be able to access it. Right, that's so, even better. So we get yeah. all our cat information then for free. Mm-hmm. And that was perfect. one of Dr. Shirk's major goals before she took her departure was to 
move to open access. Right. Yeah. yeah and Dr. Susan and I always have uh, uh, lively discussions about the advantages and disadvantages of open access. Mm, I yeah. love it because, you know, you, you reach so much more people. Yeah. Uh, Dr. Susan says that, uh, of course, then the the penalties to the the people that submit papers because they have yes. to pay for it and it's rather the author publication costs yeah they have to pay those APCs and so that potentially in theory could maybe pe- make people hesitate to actually right. submit cases and or or publications and hopefully not I mean most people that have research funding will have that worked into their research funding because this is not a new thing it's been around right. for a long time but it's, it's becoming more common as journals move open access so. Uh, right. So far, we have not had any changes in submission rates since introducing the APC. So it's a, it's a well-known. So you already journal. have the APC now? Yeah, I believe they've already initiated them. So, okay. yeah. Although it's still closed access. I think it's such a, it's a world-class journal. I mean, they, mm-hmm. Andy and Marky have taken that up from, from the ground up, right? Uh, over right. The, how many years and just made it fantastic. So I think still people want to publish there. And so that's good. And it's the only thing that uh, that is really available in cath medicine and surgery. So I I really yes, love that yeah. uh, that journal. Yeah. I always read it with uh, with a lot of pleasure. And and yes, of uh, in the last couple of um, of podcasts, uh, Doctor Susan, I have been talking about yay the feline yeah. practitioner too. I heard those podcasts. I was quite excited about having you guys talk about the magazine because that's right. that's a membership benefit. So if you're not right. an AFP member, you wouldn't get that magazine. Exactly. Uh, and it's it's really turning out quite nicely. Um, yeah, and you're also and... some you're, you're doing something there too, don't you? You're everywhere. yeah, I'm the co- medical co-editor with Dr. Ah. Jessica Quimby. Uh, so um, we 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 um, review all the medical articles and talk to the authors and get everything set up and then our uh, our editor-in-chief Heather Osteen it's the the really nitty-gritty stuff done but right. yeah we're covering the medical right. stuff and surgical I heard you want some surgery yeah, yes, articles so yes, duly yes. noted excellent, <laughs> excellent. I'm, I'm really happy now um and then uh so so really your your uh, future pathway goes into editing then I guess it does I yeah it's kind of weird I mean I have a research background because I have a master's degree and I used to do right. cancer research in the human field. Um, so it's kind of like coming full circle uh, a little bit. So it's been interesting. Yeah. I'm still practicing that's, though. <laughs> that's very cool. And talking about research uh, today and uh, next week, we're going to talk about a couple of research articles. Yes. And Dr. we C. highlighted four. So, uh, and because you're uh, our guest uh, co-conspirator uh, here at the mm-hmm. podcast, uh, you get to choose the first one. Oh, I get to choose. Well, I think the one that probably interested me the most was the variability in non-core vaccination rates. Um, so variability in non-core vaccination rates of dogs and cats in veterinary clinics across the United States. Right. Which... And because we are the per podcast, we probably are only allowed to talk about cats. So <laughs> yeah, so, so I, you in... know, I only read the cat sections of this. this Excellent. <laughs> And me and Andy, I did too. We're not interested in the word, but if you are, uh, the article is called "Variability in Non-Core Vaccination Rates of Dogs and Cats in Veterinary Clinics Across the United States." Um, obviously, it is in the Journal of Vaccine, which is a 
really highly rated uh, journal. So well done to Dr. Malter and all the other authors, mm-hmm. because it's not easy to uh, to publish in vaccine. I can tell you that. Uh, I have a couple of friends that were uh, virologists and uh, they, uh, they always complained about how difficult it sometimes is to publish in these really high end yep. articles of a journal. So uh, congrats sure. to, to the entire team. But you can uh, you can look it up if you either type in vaccine or variability of non-core vaccination rates. Um, so tell me, what what was your first impression? Well, I wasn't surprised. So if they're talking about comparing uh, core vaccines in cats, so it would be rabies and FERCP to a non-core, which in the U.S. is just going to be vaccination against feline leukemia virus. Right. Um, if you're in Australia and New Zealand, it would also include FIV. Uh, but I wasn't too surprised to learn that the vaccine rates for that non-core FELV are actually not very high, um, adult cats and also in kittens, which is where we really want to make sure they're getting that vaccine. And the rates were quite low. So it was, uh, again, not surprising. Uh, it'd be nice if we can affect some change there. Um, so they were looking at the adult cats and really 32.8% of the adult cats were current on their feline leukemia virus vaccines. And that need is going to depend on their activity and, and their risks. But even right. kittens uh, between, uh, you know, when they started their vaccines and one-year-old cats had thirty only 36.8. Yeah, and that was kittens, really surprising. I yeah, they're supposed to get it all the time because they're at increased risk of developing the disease if they're exposed. So Right, right, right. So let's yeah. let's talk a little bit about detail. So um, they looked at transitional data of 5,500,000. 31,866 dogs uh, or 1,600 practices and to around 2 million, nine, uh, 1,914,373 cats. So uh, that <laughs> is cats. just amazing. Um, and uh, and you, you you talked a little bit already about the core and non-core. Uh, yeah. So can you state what vaccines are core for the cat and what are, you already said, what are non-core? Mm-hmm. Yeah, so core vaccines are things that every cat should get, regardless of their whether they're strictly indoors or um, outdoors or partly outside. Mm-hmm. Um, and those that include the feline viral rhinotracheitis and Khaleesi virus and panleukopenia, which is often rolled into one vaccine called FVRCP um, right. or other names for it. And then rabies is going to be a vaccine, depending on the laws in someone's geographical area. It's a G- it's going to be a core vaccine. Um, for most cats, whether they're inside or out. But then when we start talking about non-core vaccines, those are things that some cats are maybe not going to be exposed to and don't need to be vaccinated against. Mm -hmm. Um, So feline leukemia virus is probably the main one for North America. We still have feline immunodeficiency virus infections in North America, but the vaccine is no longer available and hasn't been for about seven years. And it wasn't the greatest for covering the specific clades of FIV we had here, but they're still using it in Australia and New Zealand because they have a lot of FIV there. So that mm-hmm. that's probably a core vaccine in Australia. Um, but here we don't, this article didn't even look at FIV because it wasn't available when they were publishing. Right, 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 right. And then the, the, the only thing that you talked about already before is that cats younger than a year. Eh? Uh, so right. the feline leukemia virus vaccine is considered core for cats and and why Mm -hmm. is that so with the feline leukemia virus uh kittens cats under one year of age seem to have an increased susceptibility to 
becoming sick from the virus if they're exposed. So the adult cats seem to somehow resist it and just um, not get, not get infected. But kittens are at increased risk of becoming progressively infected um, and sick and having it as a fatal disease if they're exposed. So, you know, sometimes people will say, well, the cat, the kitten's only going to be indoors. They're not at risk and they don't want to vaccinate, but any exposure puts that kitten at increased risk. So we try very hard to make it a, a core vaccine for that age group so that they're all getting protected because caregivers don't always know what's going to happen with their right. kitten, what right. exposure is going to happen in the first year. Right. So yeah, and I read this article with uh, with lots of interest. And the the first thing I thought was if it's a core vaccine for kittens, but if it's not a core vaccine for adult cats, that probably will confuse that will confuse first the pet owner and yeah. often also a lot of veterinarians. I wonder if that's the reason why kittens are so much under vaccinated in feline leukemia because you only yes. hear that it's a non-core that they as Murphy they came the first day said it was non-core and then said oh no but for little kittens it's not <laughs> exactly uh, I wonder if we should change our narrative there mm -hmm. and certainly you know in the guidelines there's been vaccine guidelines that have been published both from AHA AFP and the right. World Small Animal Vet Association and they all call it a core vaccine for cats a year of age and younger. Um, right. But there is, there's some lack of information or understanding, I'd say, in the general practice. Um, and then there's, there's other things that sort of go hand in hand with that, you know, veterinarians may not be including it as part of the vaccine protocols for that kitten. So a lot of veterinarians have wellness programs, where right. it's a package deal. And, and I've worked in practices, even cat practices, where feline leukemia virus isn't part of the kitten wellness practice. Right. protocol. And so again, they're offering it to caregivers as an optional vaccine, um, which it shouldn't be, right? right? And it's added cost. So all of a sudden you're saying to a caregiver, well, this isn't included in the, you know, the most important things that we thought were critical for your kitten, um, but you really should get it, but it's going to cost you another X number of dollars. So it does really make it difficult to market it to caregivers um, that way, for sure. Yeah. Right. And I, th I, I think that uh, in the discussion, they talked about the lack of awareness on one mm -hmm. or even the failure to adhere to expert guidelines. Uh, but um, it might also be caused by that kittens, we might not exactly know if kittens were vaccinated, because if a kitten is at a shelter, the kitten might have gotten the vaccination and might not be available in the records that this specific group looked at. So I think there might be a little bit of an under uh, evaluation mm -hmm. of the number itself. Yeah. Do you know in shelters in the US and Canada, if it is common to vaccinate kittens for leukemia? It's pretty uncommon, I would say, right. because the vaccine adds cost to the shelters um, program, right? So, and when they're having kittens in their their programs, they're trying to adopt them out at fairly young ages. And some of them are probably young enough that they're not necessarily starting or old enough to start. Right. Although right. they can start them, I think, at 18. So a big thing to learn for everybody that's listening to the podcast is uh, kittens younger than one. It's a core vaccine. So yep. start vaccinating those kittens. And for anybody that is in a shelter, uh, I think you need to change your shelter rules and, and make a part of it because it's really, really important, especially in the shelter, because there they have contact probably with a lot of different cats. And you never know. Yeah, I think so, the costs are always a concern. 
I understand, I understand, but I yeah. think uh, to get a feline look, feel a positive cat uh, when you adopt it is probably not a really <laughs> good no, idea. No, that can be devastating. Imagine the cost that you get from those. So, uh, well, and I think the other thing for everyone to remember too is when we talk about kittens and cats a year a, a year of age. Kittens should get their two vaccines when they're young at eight and 12 weeks, but then they need to get a one-year booster of feline leukemia virus before you turn and decide, okay, now this cat's strictly indoors and it's zero risk for getting exposed because it doesn't live with any other cats right. and I can stop the vaccine. Um, but they definitely need a booster at one year. So that will complicate things even more. I guess, yes, it does. Giving, uh, <laughs> these, these vaccines. So yeah. uh, and I think if we if people start rolling it into their wellness programs, because a lot of practices have those wellness packages now where you buy, you pay a certain amount of money and it includes all your vaccines, your deworming, your spay or neuter. And so if it's already included in there, people are not going to balk at it. Um, but if right. it's an added thing that you are presenting as optional, then they're not going to understand you're right necessarily and they won't necessarily do it. Right, 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 right. All right. So when I look at uh, the vaccination rates for the US I, I don't think Canada was included in this this is a US study of course right. there are a couple of states that are doing really well and there's <laughs> lots of states that are not doing so well it's, it's quite it's quite all over you know Oklahoma is uh, is 80 to 100 percent so that's yeah. really good there were only a few states that what four states that were 80 to 100 percent yes there's only four states there and you can find those uh, in uh, in this paper Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's what I thought was really interesting to see that there's such a difference in states. But then there is not only a difference in states, but there is a difference in clinics within a state. Yeah. So they had uh, clinics that were vaccinating uh, almost 100%, while there's clinics in the same state that only vaccinated up to 6%. Mm-hmm. And although they they said, yes, there might be a reason for that, because m- maybe all the cats in the specific clinics are only inside there is you know it's the same state so you would expect that the circumstances are kind of comparable yeah and we shouldn't really be seeing 100 percent across the board feline leukemia virus vaccine vaccination either because that means that probably cats that don't need it as a vaccine right. are getting it right and that's if the non-core really those veterinarians need to be evaluating the cat's relative risks and making a decision based on those. And I think that's it. a really good point. I, I think, you know, that for the non-core, and that's what AHA and AVMA and WCVA say too, with the non-core vaccines, you really have to cater to the cat. So uh, yeah. the specific situation decides that. So what is then the number one reason why you would do it? So <laughs> exposure to other cats. Um, so the risk is those cats are going to, uh, if they're grooming each other, sharing food bowls, it's kind of a, Dr. Susan describes it as a, a virus of friends. It's transmitted to your friends. So if they're sharing food bowls, washing each other. So in close contact. So if they're living with other cats of unknown retrovirus status, then they should be vaccinated. If they're going outside and potentially interacting with other cats outside, they're at risk. Um, and and uh, again, if people are bringing cats in for fostering and not segregating the cats from their own cats, that's also a risk. So right. uh, anytime there's potential exposure to a cat of unknown status, then they should be vaccinated. This has been a great uh, article. Uh, it is, yeah. Wanna, uh, yeah, I, I, I love this article. Of course, it's just, 
you know, once again, in vaccine, vaccine doesn't accept everything. So lots of <laughs> cases, uh, although the disclaimer was, I mean, they always write something. Uh, um, and and so that in some states, the numbers were very small. So there's yeah. even in, in, in the cats in Idaho and oh, I think it's Nevada, there were no uh no data so there's there's still that's, some, yeah, that's some way to go uh, in, yeah. in in these kind of states so mm-hmm. uh, yes all right so that was uh, article number one mm-hmm. uh, we have uh, three left so i think because we don't have a lot of time let's talk about uh there's an article in the uh, journal of veterinary medical education about students attitudes and confidence uh, of veneer undergrad students towards working with cats in veneer hospital environments. And uh, although we, I, I couldn't see the complete uh, uh, article, I thought the, the abstract was, was already really interesting. So uh, what do you think of that? Now, this is one uh, I have to confess, Yola. I received three articles in an email, and I think oh. I missed one of them. <laughs> I missed, missed this one. one, and I'm really right. intrigued because it sounds like a really interesting conversation. Why don't you tell us what was in it, and then we can talk about it? I'm so sorry. Right? No, no, no. That's no problem at all. Uh, so, uh, as a matter of fact, uh, they they started with the fact that you need to know a little bit about cats to be able to successfully handle cats, and I mm-hmm. think you can you can confirm that. Um, and, uh, but, uh, the main thing, of course, with cats, and we talked about this for a long, long time already is that we really want to avoid triggering aggression, fear, or anxiety in cats. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. and then, then, then they said that uh, some veterinary students, uh, probably will not be able to interpret feline behavioral cues, right? Yes. Uh, and that might result in frustration and poor success uh, during, uh, handling. So what they did was uh, they looked at uh, veterinary students um, and they had uh, a couple of things that they wanted to look at. They wanted to look at the attitude towards uh, feline patients in the hospital environment, the experience that the students had, the satisfaction that the students had in feline handling, and then uh, confidence. Um, so they did an electronic questionnaire. Interestingly enough, uh, this was done. Uh, the, the article was published in uh, 22, and the study was done in May 2012. So that's, for me, really interesting because this is a study that has been on the shelves for like 10 years. Yeah, that's a long time to, and presumably things have changed since then, but. Right, yeah. maybe, maybe not. Uh, they did 173 students uh, uh, that completed the questionnaire of around 300. Mm-hmm. Uh, and um, so these these are the data. I'll, I'll, I'll show you the data and then you can respond to this. Sure. So um, if they look at the final year respondents, uh, uh, about 76% indicated that they enjoy interacting with cats in veneer hospitals. Uh, 83% indicated that they were satisfied with their cat handling skills. 91% felt confident handling quiet and wriggly cats. Uh, and only 54 or 55 felt confident handling unpredictable cats. Right. So what do you think about that? Well, I guess that's not too surprising. In fact, I'd probably say it's surprising that there's half of them were caught, felt okay with the unpredictable cats. Right. Um, but I think, think you know we're getting this shift now where we're we're trying to focus on 
avoiding the unpredictable cat. So the unpredictable response from the cat in the practice. So yeah, that, that it's, it's interesting and it's good that so many students felt comfortable because I always say this, like, um, I don't do horsework. I tried to do horsework when I was right. a new grad and I haven't been around horses all my life and I couldn't read them and they right. have very specific body language and behaviors and that I was not comfortable with that. Now I've been around cats all my life, so I'm a little more comfortable with them. So it's good that right. students were, so many students were comfortable even with the majority right. of cats. Yeah, right, right, right. So uh, I uh, I had the same thing with, with horses, as a matter of fact. Because <laughs> I had never touched a horse until I went to vet school, which is interesting. No, I did once and it kicked me off, which was not a good experience. But um, but I did take uh, horse riding lessons mm-hmm. during vet school because I wanted to know more about it. And there were some people that were just so natural with horses. Yes. And I never had that. So I can completely understand that. Uh, the other fact is I'm very allergic to cats. So I didn't have that much cat experience <laughs> either. Right. Um, uh, but uh, but yeah, I think it's a really good idea to to get at least some experience. Uh, and, and, and talking about that, so confidence in handling, especially for unpredictable cats uh, that were uh, or factors that really influenced that was the frequency of examination practice during extramural studies. So people being able to, you know, be around cats uh, outside of the study. Yeah. Uh, enjoyment of interacting with cats in veterinary hospitals. And then uh, self-perceived understanding of feline behavior, which I think is very, very interesting. Yeah. Uh, last uh, last but not least, the self-perceived ability to inter, inter, uh, interpret. I never can say that word uh, to understand cat's behavioral expressions. And, yeah. uh, and then, uh, um, so, so there's a couple of factors that, that really play a role in people feeling confident uh, handling. Mm-hmm. Cats so well, what, I think, Oh, go ahead. No, my question to you is what would be your advice for students that uh, feel that they are a little uncomfortable, even in their senior year? Mm-hmm. Well, I certainly, the as you said, the people that were getting more exposure to cats, so being around cats more often is going to be better. Just like if I had spent more time with horses, I probably would be more right. comfortable with them. Um, but, I, you know, you're aware, and you guys have talked about the new cat-friendly interactions guidelines. And, you know, to the point of understanding cats' um, emotions and behavior, that's probably the place to go, is to go and, and study that. Because the more that we understand what they're feeling based on their facial expressions, based on their behavior, yeah. um, we can actually be very successful at interacting with them without ever having them become difficult or aggressive. Right. So there's there's a lot of stuff going on there now that we're trying, working hard to, to get into the schools so that we can teach the students the emotions, fear and anxiety and frustration and pain um, and how we can you know shift, shift those over to more engaging emotions like wanting food and pets and attention. Right. So right. there's a, there's a lot that we need to do as veterinarians out in the field and people in the industry trying to change, I think, the way students are trained. Right. Yeah, those are really good points, I think. Uh, and they're probably fortified by this article. Mm-hmm. It shows yeah. that there's a clear need. Uh, and I love the fact that you, you turn this around and say, hey, we need to look at avoiding situations that you have cats yeah. that don't want to work with you instead of... Uh, you know, being comfortable doing it. 
Exactly. Yeah. Like instead of pushing the envelope and saying, okay, well, you know, this cat's not going to cooperate, so I'm just going to hold it down or I'm going to force it to do something that it's not consenting to do. Instead, we take a step back and go, can we fix this? Can we make this cat cooperative or are we going to have to reschedule the appointment or sedate the cat? And those are the ideal options in those scenarios, because the more we physically restrain them, the worse they're going to be. And the worse they're going to be moving forward because they have a really good memory for stuff like that. Don't forget. <laughs> they remember right. what their experiences have been. So it's like an elephant. They will exactly. They, they, they do not forget. And like one negative experience with a cat can set it up like for a longer term. And it can take so many positive experiences to actually repair that damage. So right. we really do need to work avoiding negative experiences. This has been a great episode. Thank you, Kelly. This, Thank this, you. Uh, Are we out of time this, already? Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know how that goes. It goes really <laughs> yeah. fast. Yeah. Uh, and we discussed two articles. Um, the, la- the latest article was, uh, and let me repeat it one more time, is in the Journal of Veterinary Medical uh, Education. Um, and it's in 22, it's volume 49, February 2022, page 45 to 50. So this is the per podcast. Uh, thank you all for listening uh, to our podcast. We really appreciate uh, your patronage. And uh, if you want more information, perpodcast.net. We're a little behind on our website, but uh, you can download the per podcast on any platform, podcast platform. And once again, I want to really appreciate and thank uh, Dr. Kelly for being on with us. So, well, you're you quite so welcome. Thank you for having me. Bye. Thank you. Bye bye. Dr. Susan Little is a feline medicine specialist with two cat-only hospitals in Ottawa, Canada. She is best known as an international speaker and as the author and editor of two textbooks, The Cat, Clinical Medicine and Management, and August, Consultations in Feline Internal Medicine. Along with three cats, she also admits to owning two dogs. And you can follow her on social media with the handle at CatVetSusan. Dr. Yurla Kirpenstein is a diplomate of the American and European College of Veterinary Surgeons and a big cat fan. His specialties range from surgical oncology and reconstruction to minimally invasive surgery. He is the author of two textbooks on basic and reconstructive surgery. Did you know he was allergic to cats? Yola works currently at Hills Pet Nutrition. You can follow him on social media with the handle at G-V-E-T-S-X. This episode is made possible by the generous sponsorship of the Take the Pledge Against True Bites in Pets Facebook page. Did you know there are three easy steps to treat bladder stones in cats with lower urinary tract signs? Step one is to take a radiograph, and if there is a stone present in the bladder, step two is to use the Minnesota Urolith app for iPhone and Android to determine the most likely type of stone. Step three is to treat the cat for at least two to three weeks with an appropriate diet and see if the stone gets smaller. If so, keep feeding that diet until the stone is completely gone on follow-up radiographs. If not, check compliance with the owner and look for alternative treatment options. Join veterinarians worldwide to take the pledge not to remove struvite stones by surgery anymore. The opinions of this podcast are those by Dr. Susan Little and Dr. Yola Kirpenstein. Veterinary medicine is a complex profession, and often there are multiple diagnostic and therapeutic options for different disease processes. 
If you're a pet owner with questions, please go to your local veterinarian. If you're a veterinary professional, ask your questions on our Instagram page at per podcast.